last year I was doing this exercise where I would leave lab and then I would um, put like a little tick every time I saw a black person. Mm. And there were days where I, like, the only, I would put only one and that was me in the mirror in the morning, right? So I was like, <laughs> that's how bad that shit was, you know, or still is. Sure, yeah. Wow, so you were like really like one yeah. of five black students on this campus. Three. Oh, I, was <laughs> I was like, you know, two more? <laughs> I was like, shit. Yeah, if you were. No, there's, there's like three or four. Yeah, there's like three or four others. I'm the only one in the neuroscience program. I mean, that's disgraceful, though. Three or four. It's like, it's disgraceful. Yeah, I think there's <laughs> only one black faculty on this entire campus. <laughs> so sad. So sad. Welcome back to the Fog at Bay. I'm Ben Mansky. In this episode, we'll hear from two Bay Area graduate students about their experiences as people of color. They'll touch on their interpersonal interactions as well as the lack of diversity and the tepid response to this problem at all levels of academia. My name is Sama. I am Sama Ahmed. I am a UCSF neuroscience graduate student. Um, we'll be graduating this summer and going off to Princeton to do a postdoctoral fellowship, which I'm pretty excited about. And I've been in grad school for a while, actually, I think seven plus years, maybe seven, eight years now. Um, throughout that time, being the only black neuroscience student, uh, you know, a friend of mine actually literally said to me earlier this week that once I graduate, it would be as if black students have went extinct in our program. Mm. And that really hit me hard because I never thought about it that way. I never thought about what it means for the program for me to leave, you know, because I don't know if there's going to be another black student for a while. Um, I love this program, which is why I'm so critical of it. Um, if I didn't care about it, I would just keep my mouth shut and just deal with this on my own. Um, I've learned a lot, not just um, about social justice, but also about science and how to do science. And it kind of breaks my heart that that's not, these opportunities are not available or made available to people that look like me here, specifically here. Um, and that there's not a concerted effort by the program to really change this. So, you know, my goal in life is to be a principal investigator. I want to run my own lab. I want to teach undergrads. I want to mentor students. I want to continue the work I'm doing now, both scientifically and in the realm of um, social justice. And I want to build a future where everyone can do science at a, at, and they can show up 100%, you know. Joyce? Not too shabby. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Joyce, and I am a PhD student in integrative biology at University of California, Berkeley, and I'm from New York originally. Uh, I came to botany in midway through college. I didn't grow up with nature at all, and I went to Haiti uh, after the earthquake in 2010, and uh, visited my family, and for some crazy reason, I was struck by the diversity of the landscape, and um, that got me thinking about nature more broadly, and eventually I narrowed down to plant biology, and eventually narrowed down to plant evolutionary biology, which is what I study in graduate school now. I have so many concerns about diversity in academia and biology. I hope that my face and my work will be of impact in the future, um, and I hope that with uh, mentorship and with transformation of the institutions completely in terms of these issues, we can start to do science 
and exactly like you said, and show up completely 100% as yourself because all of those qualities that make us ourselves make our science better and make everything better about humanity. And mm-hmm. um, Yeah, so I, I, I'm conflicted in what I want to do in my future. I'm not sure if a tenure track position is right for a radical black feminist like myself, mm-hmm. but hopefully the landscape will change and there will be space for me. Or maybe I'll make space for myself. Imagine an audience member listening to this and just seeing it as like two black people complaining. Mm. Um, it's not that, right? Like, don't, that's you dismissing this as a problem. Like, this, this kind of stuff requires like a lot of work. Like, a lot of, you have to really challenge yourself, question your assumptions, really dig deep to see how what you're doing isn't working. You know, we don't consider the student who, you know, can't come into lab because they feel unsafe, you know, or the student who's like dealing with depression or anxiety or has no one to talk to or feels isolated. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, these people are here and they could be doing science at, a, at an incredible level. They got mm-hmm. to this point mm-hmm. facing these struggles. So if we lift some of their burden, like who knows what they can do. Right. You know, that's, and it's, I don't think people are really thinking that way here, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't think people can be, or at least I can speak for myself, I can't be productive in an environment that I don't feel safe and that I can't uh, vocalize how I feel and that I'm being silenced. There's no way I can be productive and reading papers all day and being mm-hmm. in the lab for hours and end. How do you expect me to achieve if yeah. I can't even voice my concerns and, and express myself as a black woman and be heard? Uh, that's just all part of being human and that's part of, that's part of being productive. I mean, you have to feel safe. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually to the benefit of just the productivity of science that <laughs> people feel safe yeah, yeah. in their work environment. Yeah, I didn't have a clue that someone could really be a full-time scientist um, simultaneously being a person of color until I met my mentor. I was lucky enough to do an internship when I was an undergrad, um, at a museum, and my mentor was a Puerto Rican male, and he believed in me, and he showed me what it was like to be a scientist, and he was the first and only person initially that was like, you should go to graduate school, and pushed me to, and supported me all the way until today, and still a collaborator. Um, But I don't think I could have ever envisioned that, even though I was in school, dealing with professors, doing research, I still didn't see myself as a scientist until I met him. And, uh, yeah, that, that was what it took. I don't, th- I don't think I could have ever gotten to that conclusion had I not met him. So it's very important. It really is. I think for a lot of people of color, I don't even think we know what it takes to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. Like, to get into grad school, like, what are the credentials you need to enter a top-tier graduate program? Like, you need to do a lot of research. You need to have a, do really well in school, you know, take science classes and math classes that you may not realize that you need to do. And you need people really early on to sort of mentor you along that route, mm-hmm. right? So for me, it was, um, uh, it was a program, a summer program. Uh, my biology teacher was like, here, you should apply for this. And it was like freshman year. Right, it was you know, right after freshman year of uh, high school right, when I started. And it was specifically geared towards minority students. Right? And they had a really brilliant idea, which is incredibly simple, which is just to pay them well. Yeah. Right, <laughs> and then and then they then they come here and they work during the summer, and they don't work at McDonald's. I was actually working at a thrift store, which I loved, uh, but it was like hard labor 
for you know pennies pretty much you know uh and then i was like oh i can just do i can like work in the lab and get paid a lot more i was like hell yeah i'm doing this like no idea like thinking okay 10 years down the line i'm going to be a, a scientist at ucsf you know doing like work that i love doing right so to to have and then like by by joining the lab i found love with it ended up staying and then i ended up building those years of research experience that you need to apply to grad school because if you don't pay students and you ask them to just volunteer for a summer mm -hmm. you immediately select for people who can volunteer during the summer right. which shuts out a lot of people of color a lot of people from poor communities and i would have never been in this position if it wasn't for that simple economic fact of like this kid's working at a thrift store like, that's probably not going to get him into grad school. And we can just get him working in a lab and pay him a little bit more than the thrift store. And it paid off, you know. Even the thing we're doing right now, Fog at Bay, like, is a start-off by people who were initially in Carry the One Radio, the, the podcast that I started. Um, it's a science communication podcast, right? That's what, that's what they do. They tell science stories. I didn't give a fuck about science communication when I started it, right? I got here, and I looked around, and there was, like, no black people. And I lashed out, and the way I lash out usually is through creative, productive ways because I want to do something to change what's happening. So I called my mentor in Philly, talked a little bit about it, my, some ideas with him, and uh, thought that the big thing was access to scientists, like, so... You know, young black kids don't have access to scientists, so they don't know that they can do science. So the whole point of the podcast was to just interview these scientists, ask them how they got into science, and then pump that into high schools so young kids can be like, oh, to do science, I just need to get into a lab and work hard, and I need to learn this, and, and I can follow my curiosity, which is some of the messages that were put together by some of these, like, really big scientists that I got to interview because I'm at a top-tier university. Um, it wasn't about communicating science at all, right, which is what it's become, which is great. Right? I'm totally proud of it. But at the very core of it, it was a reaction to what I saw was like a system that didn't want people that look like me here. Right? So I don't want anyone to ever forget that. You know? um, what you're talking about is me promoting Carry the One. It was first on postcards, and then it was on uh, flyers, and then it was on posters around campus, and then it was on a bus. And I have some issues with that trajectory, actually, because I didn't know, I didn't know that would would play out the way that it did. Um, but one student, not student actually, a colleague, uh, flippantly said to me, "Like the only reason you're on the bus is because they need a diversity person on the bus." And this, in and of itself, if it were to happen the first time ever, I would have been like, no, you, know, you don't know what you're talking about. I worked hard. But because this has happened at every stage of my career, where like, I got into a good college, and this other guy who didn't get into that same college was like, you're only there because you're black. I got into a good UC, I got into UCSF. I got the same reaction from people around me. You're only going because like, um, you're black, because they need black people. So at every stage, like you have to... I've never felt like I could be mediocre. Like, there was never any space for mediocrity. I've always felt like I had to keep, like, working really hard to... Um, you can't even make a tiniest mistake. Everything is shattered. You're, discred you're discredited completely. Yeah, and even, st like, even still, right? Like, people will continue to say that, I think, at every um, transition and every accomplishment that I will make. 
And I've, I've not grown to accept it. I've, I've grown to understand it as not being me. It's not a problem with me, mm-hmm. right? Um, before, I would internalize a lot of these things. And you're like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I am, like, on the bus because they need black people. And maybe that is true, right? Maybe that's part of the advertising. Like, they want to show off some sort of diversity. Um, but to uh, the, the dismiss the work that I did to get to that point is incredibly uh, problematic, right? You know, it's kind of a conflicting experience because I, when I'm looking at websites of organizations and institutions, I want to see people of color. So I see it as they want to show prospective students and faculty what um, their diversity looks like. But at the same time, um, it's not really representative of what the diversity actually looks like. So it's kind of, it's, it, it's good because it will attract more diversity, but it also is misleading because it's not really representative of what the campus actually looks like. Yeah. I think that's right, right. I think maybe that's maybe, like, the most positive spin I can put on it. Right? It's like they are trying to recruit more people of color. Um, but it comes off, it's like a cart before the horse kind of thing, right? Like, if mm-hmm. you create a supportive, inclusive environment, that will have ripple effects beyond... Um, images on websites and and pamphlets is how I see it. My advisor in my undergraduate school was hot and cold. Sometimes supportive, sometimes a little bit rude. I never really knew what to get from him. But when I decided to go to grad school and I applied to six programs and I was really overwhelmed because no one in my family, left or right, up or down, had any type of master's or PhD, of course. And so I was so ecstatic, and I was so excited. I had no idea what that was going to mean, but I just knew that it was, like, super advanced, and I just wanted to be part of it somehow. And I was really proud of myself, so I went to my advisor. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, so you fooled them all. And... I hold on to that, and I think about it at least once a week. I think about it every time people say things to me about affirmative action. I think about it every time people say, you're only on it because you're black, you're only in there because you're black. I always think about how he made me feel in that moment and that I felt powerless. I felt like he, if he was talking to someone who hadn't been through instances like that so many times, you could have broken that person's career. You could have broken that person's pride in themselves and their stride. And um, But I experienced so much racism and sexism my whole life that I, I sort of had the tools to deal with that, but I still was pretty traumatizing. Um, those sort of words are really powerful coming from a professor to an undergraduate student. And once again, that's why it's important to have people that look like you and can speak your language and can talk to you in a more humane way because he didn't understand that the power dynamics of not only being a white man but being a professor had so much power over me in that moment and he could have he could have stopped me from being a scientist that day uh so that was pretty repulsive Mm -hmm. i always remember that and again i think that goes back to this idea of like what does it mean to create a supportive inclusive environment like all scientists are valued um when you're like (laughs) when the when your student body doesn't reflect the, the 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 demographics of the state or the country, then I think you're far from from being inclusive and supportive. And even if it does, if the faculty body doesn't reflect that, then you're then I don't think you have any way of clearly showing support 
to students. Clearly at the recent town hall meeting, we have like a room full of students and three faculty. One of the things that uh, our director wanted to address was the lack of diversity um, in our program. Would that room was safe? No, definitely not, right? I could not air out my concerns in a way that made sense to me, and I had to be uh, aware and of the of what people might think of me and also mm -hmm. think of like what I'm trying to say. I don't want to alienate, alienate anyone by, you know, um, it's, a, it's an emotionally charged thing, right? And people kind of get nervous and kind of want to clam up and become defensive. Mm. And when I did challenge one of the faculty at, the, at this meeting, he, that's exactly what happened. Right? He became defensive and almost like antagonistic uh, towards me. Yeah, so the issue at the time was, in that moment, was why are we not hiring people of color and women scientists? Like why is the, the you know, why, is, why do women only make up 20% of our faculty body? And why don't we have any black faculty candidates to even come interview, for instance? And there was, we all kind of, this kind of was wrapping up the discussion, and this faculty member said, like, he was on the um, faculty recruitment committee for four years, and that this issue of why don't we have people of color and minority, URM is the hot topic uh, acronym, right? I, I hate that term, but like, underrepresented minority. Uh, candidates we don't have any because the quality just isn't there and the applicant pool is small and I've heard this argument multiple times it's it's actually like part victim blaming part deflection of responsibility like if, you know like for me for you to say that you've been doing this for four years and this is an issue that comes up every year and yet you haven't figured out how to solve it tells me that maybe you shouldn't be on the faculty recruitment committee um, either it's not an issue that you care to solve or it's not an issue that you know how to solve so I, I kind of like, I was like a challenge. I was like, you know, what do you mean by that? Like, you know, you're not, if that's what you think, then you're not being creative about your process, right? Mm -hmm. And he challenged, he's like, he's like, what do you mean we're not being creative? Like, what do you mean by that? They're like, what are we doing? And I'm like, you're not being creative because whatever you're doing, you just told me, hasn't been working. And he's like, then what would, you, what would you do? And I was like, okay, I've been in this situation multiple times too of like having to solve <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, okay, here's, here's my job now. I'm supposed to be a student doing science, and yet I'm, I'm tasked with how to um, deal with racism and sexism and faculty recruitment. Like, it's, mm -hmm. not, my, it's not my job, you know, and it's not, right. you know. So I, I, I bit my tongue, and I was like, there's nothing for him for me to bring, bring that up. So I just said, I know, I'll take an intersectional approach, and we can talk about it some other time. Um, and he said, sure, and then yeah, we have not talked. <laughs> No, this stuff is physically tiring, you know? Yeah. It is. Like, you, you asked about, like, having space to talk about it. Like, I, I, was, I went to that town hall meeting. I was like, I made a promise to myself. I was like, don't say anything. Mm. I was like, don't just, you know, keep quiet and just listen. Why? I was worried about some, a lot of these things, and I just could not hold my tongue anymore. I yeah. was like, we're all talking circles here, in circles. No one's really addressing the fact that this program is not supportive of black people. Actually, I would go so far as to say that the program is systemically racist, right? Um, and I don't think anyone could, would, could disagree with me about that because like, over eight years, you've had only one black student. Yeah. I don't know how to, def how, to dis how to say that the program is not racist if that's the outcome. If, again, back to impact, right? I don't care what your intentions are. This is San Francisco. It's like supposed to be like one of the most liberal cities, and yet it's... I've faced the most racism here, you know, mm -hmm. like 
from like explicit shit to from like you know being called you know nigger on campus to all the way to implicit things like just being gaslit on problems that I'm having that are specific to who I am. So it's not a we can't like keep pretending because it closes you know closes closes doors to us. We end up living in a bubble pretty much. Mm-hmm. So we need to really be serious about these problems. I think. I mean, this, this is, it's always surprising to me when I tell someone a story like that, that they're shocked by it. Mm. You know, I'm telling this guy, he's like, well, we should all just be able to do science at the, at the level. Like, everyone's on an equal playing field. Mm. And I guess I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? Like, that's impossible, right? Like, no way we're all, this is a level playing field. It might be a level playing field for you. And this is actually something my, my partner said to me that just made, framed this all perfectly, which is that for this guy, his idealism is very close to his reality. Like, the way he wants to be able to do science is also the way I want to be able to do science. But for him, it's it's actually pretty close to what his life is like. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's not. Right? I'm actually, it's pretty far from that. So it's a struggle just to be able to show up. Right? That's why, that's why I say, like, me coming to work every day is activism. It's not, it's not just for me. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, everything that you do that you have to do outside of your science detracts from your ability to do your science. Absolutely. Yeah, you spend so much time in graduate school and as a, or if you ever get to become a professor doing mentoring, mm-hmm. for example, and working with undergrad students and sort of like being on all these committees and being the diversity equity advisor that when it comes for tenure, then people are like, well, you haven't published as much. And it's like, well, you gave me all these other jobs that I basically don't get paid for. So, right. you know... That, that, and it matters because it's actually it's part of the value package, I believe, but it's not really used as a metric for yeah. um, academic standards. So it's kind of problematic in that way. If I was ever in a position to hire students or to be postdocs in my lab or to hire um, or to, go get, or to ro- get rot- uh, rotational students into my lab to be grad students, like I'm going to be looking for people like, who can deal with uh, struggle. Mm. Right, you know what I mean. Right. So, like, if I'm just looking at your publication record, I think at the end of the day, if I just keep selecting people who have the most number of publications, I'm also selecting for people who have had the privilege to publish that many papers. Right. right? So, you know, the way I see it, it's like if you have two candidates, and say, you know, one's a man and one's a woman, and they have the same, uh, you know, they run a race and they both have the same time on that race. Mm-hmm. Like, if I just judge it on that then it's like a coin flip. But if I look closer and I find out the woman's actually been wearing weights the whole time, mm-hmm. then I, you know what I mean? So it's like clearly like one of the candidates is better for me. Right. And if I create an environment where this, this person can feel supported, then like who knows what they can do. Mm. That's how I see it, at least. So there needs to be like a much more holistic view of a candidate, especially when you're hiring at the faculty level. Because like, if you just keep looking at who published the most papers, you're going to keep getting straight white men. Right to be faculty, you know, and you're not, and you're going to miss out on all of these extra things that don't get put on paper, like, who do we put in front of an undergrad class, Mm -hmm. who is available to mentor students of color in Mm -hmm. a way that's not, you know, just from your lived experience, you can't do as a, as a a straight white man, you know. Right. Right. I've had this conversation with people saying that all these diversity issues sort of lower the standard of the of the yeah. academic pool. But actually, I super disagree. I think that it completely, like, elevates the standards because now you're asking for someone who has all this lived experience on top of all this qualified academic experience. 
Um, and, and you just can't get that from anybody. So actually, I think that the standards have been raised by asking for more diverse applicant pools. But it's not immediately obvious to someone who doesn't understand the mm-hmm. struggle. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like, and then if like your student, you know, if your student drops out of your lab or leaves the program, you don't see it as anything to do with you or your inability to mentor them. You see it as they just won't cut out for this, mm-hmm. right? And they see it that way too, which is the problem, mm-hmm. right? Even though they are cut out for it, they just the system doesn't allow them to be able to show up and do science. Right, so you need um, there's more to just there's more to it than just like recruiting better or putting people on flyers and, and websites. Right, it's you, it needs to be like a cultural shift in the thinking. Right? We need to take uh, a more holistic view of applicants, either at the entering grad school or, or looking for postdocs or looking for faculty. Um, we know, like for once, like one thing that faculty can do when they're recruiting is like decide on the rubric beforehand. This is something I heard from a faculty at UCSD. He said that you can just sit down and say, this is the rubric we're going to use to decide on who we hire. And if you decide that before looking at applications, you tend to have a more fair, a much more fair outcome mm-hmm. than if you decide afterwards. Because once you do, af- once you decide on the rubric afterwards, you tend to like elevate applications that you like and say like, well, actually we, we should have someone who has three publications because the application in your hand has three publications. Right. Right, so you end up selecting again for the same kind of phenotype that you identify with. Um, so that so it ends up again not being fair. And we know that these biases are there. Like people, are not, I'm not, I don't blame any single individual for any of the problems that I'm just like that I see around me at UCSF. It's not any individual's fault. It's a systemic issue. That's why I keep bringing it back to like changing the culture and having, you know, having the focus be on impact rather than on intent. And to actually push students, too, to open up about these things, because I, you know, like all major changes, they, I feel like they have to come from the ground up, mm-hmm. like grassroots operations. Right. Actually, at Berkeley, they implemented something uh, that I think is really powerful, which is that two graduate students can be elected to the faculty search of every department. Um, so every time they're looking for a faculty, they have two graduate students in the room that are putting in their more millennial perspective of, of things and uh, able to sort of like interject the conversation when, when it goes to a biased direction uh, that usually leads to a white male hire. Um, the graduate students can be in the room and, and sort of fix that, that, that dynamic. I think that's really great. Right, like the fact that they bring in two students sit on the faculty board, the faculty recruitment board or whatever it's called, committee. Mm-hmm. Um, suggest that they're interested at least in doing something about it. It was a student-led initiative, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it has to be grassroots. It has to be grassroots, right? It goes back to that. But, the, like, it just, there's so much science out there on it. Like, I do want to talk about what happens when you do make an inclusive environment. Mm-hmm. Because I'm part of, I'm very, very, very fortunate to be in a lab that is a safe space for a lot of people. We have um, Latino students, me as a black student, um, LGBTQ students, all sorts of students in, in our lab, and our PI, our principal investigator, is a ally to all of us. And what that does to, uh, to our, our lab space is it creates an environment where there's basically no hostility. There couldn't be any hostility because anything that usually drives hostility is like some sort of discrimination or some sort of sexism, racism, some something like that, or some some gender comment that's just 
inappropriate um, or insensitive, and we can't even get to those places because we have so much commonality. Um, and because we have so much commonality and, and basically lived experiences, or at least we're able to empathize with each other because of our lived experiences, we're able to do science so much more effectively. Like, mm-hmm. I don't compete with anybody in my lab, for example. I collaborate with people so much easier because of that. Uh, we exchange information so much easier. We can brainstorm so much easier because we basically have eliminated the boundaries of you're better than me, I'm better than you. We have these stratas in between us. Now it's we've created an actual equal playing field where people can actually... Uh, speak to each other as human and scientists. So what happens when you actually correct that environment is you empower the people to empower themselves, and all those people come from diverse backgrounds, and it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So I really, I think it's, I, I think it can be done because I'm in that setting right now, and I envy people. I mean, I, I, I feel bad for people yeah. <laughs> who are not in a setting like that, but uh, it's really inspirational, actually, because being in a setting like that where everybody is able to do science and be themselves, um, it gives me hope that if I were to be a PI, that it's possible. I can create an environment where I can recruit all sorts of diverse students, and they can empower themselves to empower each other and, and make powerful science, because it's possible. Having an ally or having someone to talk to who has shared experiences really is important, because, yeah, you, you lose immediately the... I'm crazy, and then you realize you're not crazy, and then you can actually start to work through those issues and talk about them and vocalize them and be sort of active in changing them. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to have. That's why it's it's terrible to be the only one, because you have no one around you to to talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially without anyone at the faculty level to sort of go talk to in private, right? right? Um, it's 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 crazy. It's like if it, if there was just like one black neuroscience faculty here like like <laughs> I think a lot about that I'm like man where would I be right now like would I have already graduated you know like mm-hmm. would I have published like p- enough papers by now to to get to the next step there you know that I need to get to like I think a lot about that like I said there's so many things just like you're saying like I didn't even know I was dealing with these issues um for a long time I just I just didn't know how do you have the strength to after after your time here, how do you have the strength to want to be a PI after all this? I just I like feel defeated. I might be some in my third year like slum or whatever, but like I feel defeated, and I almost feel like I should bring my fight somewhere else. Yeah, I think a lot about that, you know. But then I I think a lot also about what I didn't have getting to this point, and seeing how I can have, I can give that to people, you know. I know, but it's a sacrifice. That's the thing. Like, I feel like when people are like, you don't want to be a professor, it's like, it's not that I don't want to be a professor. I just know that in order to be a professor, I have to sacrifice my life, basically. I have to sacrifice, like, for the next whoever knows how many years, uh, microaggressions for eternity. I have to sacrifice the fact, like, I, I, I have to sacrifice my, like, sanity, basically, because I know that I'll be, like, signing up for intense scrutiny that no one else really receives for my entire career and and like I can and and like I was mentioning I can never ever slip up because as soon as I slip up I'm like discredited for of everything I've ever done um even though like when a white boy slips up it's like oh he's having a bad day he made a joke and then me if I skip up oh well she never knew the content and it's like oh my god Mm -hmm. so like I just know that I'd be signing up for a life of scrutiny and I and and sacrifice and I just don't know if I have the strength anymore science prides itself in this like precision and accuracy and and like being like 
somehow also being kind of like bravado and yeah. like and like having all these attributes at once. And if I come in as sort of like, uh, I don't know, if I come in and I make like one mistake, if I say like the wrong species name or something, I feel like they'll be like, oh, she never knew it anyway. It's pronounced differently. It's Latin or whatever. And it's like, mm. my fuck. Like, 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 <laughs> I don't know. I think it's like specific to science, but I think academia prides itself in like elitism, period. And elitism means that it's like, it's exclusive. It's like intrinsically exclusive to be elite and therefore only certain people can fit the criteria and you don't fit the criteria if you talk differently, if you if you if you pronounce things differently, if you make mistakes and the on scientific precision, like I, I think it is academic. Um, yeah, a black woman is gonna be like criticizing everything, but I think that like in a bubble full of like basically like pe- white men who feel so proud of themselves mm-hmm. They're like particularly dangerous because they they yeah. they're so proud of themselves. It's like this elitism is dangerous, yeah, or violent. I think for me maybe it's um, there's a profound love of science and the process of science, mm-hmm. and that's really hard for me to let go of. I know, I know you feel. I'm like because I don't want to leave science. Yeah, I just don't want to deal with professors and. All that. I've faced a lot of hardships in life, and this is uh, something that I feel like I can tackle. Wow, good for you. That's how I see it. There's been harder things to deal with in my life. I want to say something about. I'm really nervous about this. <laughs> because you're, you're not supposed to defend yourself. Like, yeah. I actually just had this conversation with my partner the other day about, like, people of color, stop taking L's, and finally being like, you know what, I'm going to stand up for myself in this moment. It's so uncomfortable. Because we always put, like, whatever. We always put white people's comfort, comfort before justice. Mm-hmm. And so it's so unfamiliar to step into a territory and be like, that's wrong, and, like, have to express it. And a lot of it is in our head. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is in our head and in our heart, and we, like, never get a chance to vocalize it. So, like, yeah, when you finally get to vocalize it, it's so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. It just it just means that we've been taught not to do that. That's probably exactly it. I appreciate you bringing that up. It's like, because it's just, like, that that weird tension all of a sudden, right? Yeah. Like, I feel that way, too. I feel guilty, like, I just betrayed my department. Yeah. But really, I just told my story. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. That's exactly right. Because, like, I don't want people to think that I don't like this program. And I love my program, too. I love my program. <laughs> what is it? Baldwin, Baldwin said, like, he, he loves America, and he, you know, he, he will always criticize her. And he, called, uh, he feminized America for some reason. But he, he said he would always, he holds the right to criticize her perpetually. And it's like, I think that's a form of love. Right? Like, you, mm-hmm. you want the program to do better. I want the program to do better for people that look like me, you know? There's these opportunities are rare to be able to do science like this. Yeah. They're not, yeah, they don't come every day. So it just breaks my heart that they're cut off. They're cut off from people like, that look like me. We'd like to thank Sama and Joyce for opening up and sharing their stories. We'd also like to thank the UCSF Office of the Vice Provost for their generous support. This episode was produced by Dimitri Rumis with help from Lake Kodama, Anna Lipkin, and me, Ben Mansky. It also featured music by Topher Moore and Alex Elena, as well as Silent Partner. Contact us by emailing us at thefogatbay at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and let us know your story.